0: The following recording was produced by Christ Redeemer Church of Hanover, New Hampshire. You may find more information on the church and its various resources on the web at www.christredeemerchurch.org. Here's the uh, word of the Lord for today, taken from Micah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, and also chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire and all her idols I will lay waste For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us, He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This is the word of the Lord for us today.
1: Thank you, Mark. Well, good morning, everyone. As Doug said, my name is Mike O'Leary, and it is just a real privilege to be here with you this morning. Um, it's really a privilege to be part of that preaching team. I've learned a lot. We, I think we're very fortunate to have some really great pastors on our staff, and they have been kind enough. I always joke with them that they let me as an imposter come into those meetings, so um, it's been a real privilege, and I'm, I really appreciate it. Uh, if you would just pray with me as we get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together as your people and to hear from your word. Fathers, we take this time now to, to dig into this passage, and Micah, I just pray for your grace and your mercy upon us. We are feeble-minded, we're easily distracted, and there's really nothing we can do in our own strength or power to understand these things. And so I ask for you to be at work in our hearts and our minds. Give me the words to speak, and and just allow us to hear the things that you would have to say to us this morning. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as the father of five children, three of whom are girls, I have experienced my fair share of fairy tales. We've seen, I think, by last count, all of the movies Uh, We have read the books, we've bought the dress-up clothes and the toys. It's probably fair to say that I know most of these stories inside and out. I'm also fairly convinced there's a significant amount of important space in my brain being taken up by lyrics to full Disney songs. But that's another story. Uh, But while each of these stories is different, they all share at least one common element. There's a moment in each of these stories when everything seems to have gone wrong, when all hope seems to be lost. And then at the last minute, seemingly out of nowhere, there's a turn in the narrative. The hero slays the dragon, the evil spell is broken, the glass slipper fits, and everyone lives happily ever after. To paraphrase author J.R.R. Tolkien, it is the moment in the story that makes a fairy tale a fairy tale. In fact, he found this element so common in these stories that he actually coined a phrase to describe it. He called it a catastrophe, literally a good catastrophe. And we can define it this way. It is a massive turn in fortune from a seemingly unconquerable situation to an unforeseen victory, usually brought by grace rather than heroic effort. Or, to quote Tolkien himself, it is the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. And this you catastrophe is not just for children's fairy tales, we find it everywhere. If you're like me and my family, you've started watching Christmas movies because it's that time of year. And we see it in the story of Scrooge when he gets a second chance at life or when Rudolph takes Santa's sleigh through the snowstorm or when Frosty the Snowman comes back to life. We see it in our sports movies, our war movies, our superhero movies, we even see it in romantic comedies, when the girl gets the guy even after everything seems to have gone wrong in the relationship. You see, there's something about this positive turn in the story, this catastrophe, that really resonates with us. And certainly one part of that is we like the people we're rooting for to succeed. We want to see the good guys win. And there's no question that that's at play, that... That that's part of the reason that this feature is so popular in our stories. But I think there is something deeper going on here. You see, I think one primary reason these stories really resonate with us is because they are echoes or shadows of a bigger story. They are signposts that point us to a greater catastrophe. One that we all long for, even if we do so unconsciously. Namely, the restoration of creation, and more importantly, the restoration of our relationship with God. Now, as Pastor Doug said, this is the first Sunday of Advent season. Though, if you've been to any retail stores recently, you probably thought Advent started several months ago. Seems like it gets earlier every year, I don't know. Uh, but Advent is a time for God's people to prepare our hearts for the Christmas message. And I was, I was thinking about this upcoming holiday season, and as I was preparing for this sermon, I started reflecting on how Christmas really is the ultimate catastrophe. Christmas is, if you, if you will, a true fairy tale. It's a story when all hope seemed lost, when darkness and sin seemed to have won, and then God stepped in to save us. And it's easy to lose sight of that message in the hustle and bustle of this season. And as I said, it seems to get earlier every year, and it certainly seems to get busier every year. And so, to prepare our hearts for this Christmas season, We're going to be taking a break from our series in Galatians, and we're going to do a four-week series in the book of Micah. And I've been asked to, to introduce the book, to go over the general themes and the overall message. And as I studied this book, I was struck by the stark difference between the beginning and the end. And you probably noticed it as Mark read that passage for us. It starts with utter hopelessness but it ends with unbelievable hope. And then there's a hinge moment in the middle of the book where there's a prophecy about the coming Messiah. And so I thought this would be a great opportunity for us to revisit, or maybe even hear for the first time, the catastrophe of Christmas. And to do that, we're going to look at three things this morning. Number one, a hopeless situation. Number two a glimmer of hope, and number three, hope incarnate. So again, that's a hopeless situation, a glimmer of hope, and hope incarnate. So first, a hopeless situation. And we're going to spend most of our time in this point. This is by far my longest point. Because I think the best way for us to appreciate a you catastrophe, is to understand the hopeless situation in which it occurs. In other words, we need to grasp the bad news so that when the good news comes, we get it, we feel it. And in Micah, the people of Israel were certainly in a hopeless situation. The book tells us that Micah prophesied during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, all three of whom were kings in Judah, and if you're familiar with these kings at all, you know that the people of Israel were not doing a very good job following God at this time. Instead, idol worship and pagan sacrifices ran rampant throughout the land. I've pulled a few snippets from Second Kings 17 that talks about this time period. Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger, and they served idols. The Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, but they would not listen. They despised his statutes. They abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God. They burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord. And if that wasn't bad enough, Micah tells us that the leaders of Israel have completely abandoned their responsibilities. Those who are supposed to lead the people to shepherd them are instead consumed by greed. And they've gotten wealthy through dishonesty. And Micah also tells us that even the prophets have become corrupt. Things are about as bad as they could be, And I would argue we've only scratched the surface of what was really going on here. Israel has completely rebelled against God. Despite God's many blessings, despite the grace and the mercy that he has shown the people of Israel, they've turned instead to false gods and wicked practices. And as a result, Micah prophesies judgment against Israel. It's interesting, many commentators note that Micah reads a lot like a legal proceeding. Some of them even call it a divine lawsuit for breach of a covenant. Essentially, Micah is a courtroom setting in which God is the plaintiff, the witness, the judge, and the executioner. And the court verdict comes down. And God has rightly judged his people guilty. And as a result, he's going to execute judgment upon them. And it is a terrible judgment. Just look at Micah 1, 3, and 4. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him. And the valleys will split open. Like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. This is the language of utter destruction, of complete devastation and ruin. Micah is abundantly clear that the holy, righteous God of Israel is going to pour out his wrath upon the people. And it would clearly be an understatement to say this is bad news for Israel. Quite frankly, it is a hopeless situation. Because Israel is not just facing some invading army that they have hope of going to battle against. They're not just facing some natural disaster that they can hope to weather. Instead... They're facing the wrath of the God who spoke the universe into existence. Just just think about that for a second. I mean, you and I can't speak anything into existence. As a parent, as a youth leader, I, I can't even speak obedience into the children that I'm supposed to have leadership over, let alone speak galaxies into existence. And yet God has done that. He has spoken all of creation into existence, and this is the one whose wrath is being poured out upon Israel. The one who could make mountains melt and valleys split open. And this judgment was imminent, and it was unavoidable. Now, in our modern, so-called progressive culture, we don't really like the idea of judgment. We have phrases like don't judge me or you do you. Our culture may accept a God of love, a God of forgiveness, a God of tolerance, but a God of judgment? Yeah, no, no thank you. But the Bible doesn't shy away from the idea of judgment. We find it all throughout the pages of Scripture. And yet often is. Christians were tempted to make excuses for God, to try to explain away the more difficult passages of scripture. And so here maybe we say, well, yeah, we don't really love judgment, but I mean Israel deserved it. Look at all the terrible things that they were doing. Really they they had it coming. And it seems like in some senses we're okay with judgment if we feel like the people being judged deserved it. I mean, we like in stories when the villain gets what's coming to them. But here's the problem. You see, Israel is not some exception to the rule, as if they were especially bad, and the rest of us are pretty much okay, and so we get a pass. Rather, Israel's rebellion is representative of all humanity. The Bible makes it clear that there are no neutral parties. In our fallen state, we are enemies of God and we are in active rebellion against him. But maybe you object. You say, but I've, Mike, I've never worshipped physical idols. I've never sacrificed my children to false gods. And that's a good thing. Don't get me wrong. That's good. Uh, but let me ask you some diagnostic questions. Does your life look like a life of someone who prioritizes God and his commandments above all else? Or does your life revolve around something other than God? Or let me ask you this, do you love to follow God's law, every single piece of it? Or do you pick and choose? Do you make excuses for the things that you don't really get right? Or do you just ignore some of it altogether? You see, the the Bible tells us that idolatry is much more nuanced than just physical idol worship. Idolatry and rebellion are really matters of the heart. And in that, we are all guilty. But then maybe you say, okay, Mike, I'll buy that. I'll buy that I'm guilty of some some stuff. I've done some things, but I mean, I I live a pretty good life, right? Is it really that bad that I've done some things that are wrong, that I sometimes prioritize things other than God? Do I really deserve destruction instead of just a slap on the wrist? But the reason we think like that is because we're much more sympathetic to sinful human beings because we are sinful human beings than we are to a holy God. You see, the issue is that the severity of sin, and therefore the severity of the punishment for sin, is not based solely on the action itself, but on the value of the one who is sinned against. Think about it this way. If you were to walk into a junkyard and walk up to an old beat-up car, missing wheels, no engine, take out your key and just put one long scratch in the side of the car, there probably aren't going to be any significant consequences. They may ask you to stop doing that, but that's probably about it. But then imagine you walk into a used car dealership and you go up to a car that's worth $15,000, take out that same key and just put a long scratch in the side of that vehicle. Well, now there's probably going to be some consequences because you've damaged something valuable. But now imagine you walk onto a Lamborghini dealership and you walk up to a $500,000 car, you take your key and you just put a scratch all along the side of that car. Well, now we're talking some pretty serious consequences because that car is worth a lot of money. And what's interesting is in each of these cases, you've done the exact same thing. But the severity of the thing that you did is based on the value of that vehicle. And so what I would argue is that if we truly understood God's value as a holy, righteous, good God, then we would start to understand his judgment. But you see, that leads us to an uncomfortable truth. Because just as Israel was found guilty in the court of heaven, We, too, are guilty. To quote Pastor John Piper, the prosecuting attorney is the unassailable law of God, and the defense attorney does not exist. There is no defense. It is manifest to everyone in the courtroom that all evidence is against me. You see, my friends, one day, we are all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. And if that trial goes based on our record, on our merit, then the verdict will be guilty. It's an open and shut case, and there will be no possibility for appeal. And the sentence for that guilty verdict is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death eternal separation from God and everlasting ruin. It is not an exaggeration to say that that is the worst possible scenario that we could find ourselves in. And this is the hopeless situation that Israel, and by extension we, found ourselves in prior to the first Christmas. But, like all good fairy tales... The story doesn't end here. And that brings me to my second point, a glimmer of hope. You see, even in the midst of all this judgment language in the book of Micah, we find hope. In chapter two, Micah says that God will again gather his people and he will be their shepherd. In chapter four, he says that God will rescue his people. And in chapter 5, he says that a remnant will be delivered. But how? How is it possible to get from judgment, deserved, imminent judgment, to rescue? Well, Micah points us to God's character. In chapter 7, verse 18, he says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Although the Bible is abundantly clear that God is holy and that he will exact punishment for sin, Micah also reminds us that God is gracious and merciful, that he delights in steadfast love. And at one level, this should not surprise the people of Israel. It is who God has always been. It's who God declared himself to be when he introduced himself to them on Mount Sinai. In Exodus 34, 6, God says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That is how he describes himself. But at another level, this should be shocking. Recently, I started listening to a book. It's a true story about a husband who decides that he is going to fight for his marriage after his wife has had an affair. And it really struck me as I was listening to that, the, the kind of love and commitment needed to make that decision. But what if instead of just one affair... It was multiple affairs with multiple different people. And what if after taking that spouse back, you knew that they were going to continue to be unfaithful? And then what if that spouse decided they were going to build a shrine to all of those other relationships in your living room? That sounds like a crazy idea, but it's almost quite literally what Israel has done. This is not the first time they've been unfaithful to God. This is not the first time that they have fallen into idolatry and it's not going to be the last time. But Micah 1.5 also tells us that Jerusalem has become a high place. And a high place in the Old Testament is a place where they practiced worship to false gods and sacrifices to those false gods. Jerusalem is the location of God's temple. It is his dwelling place among the people. And they have turned Jerusalem into the place of horrible idol worship. It is an utter betrayal of who they are meant to be as people of God. And yet, God shows them mercy. And he promises after judgment to reconcile them back to himself. And this is a love that really should shock us. You see, the Bible often talks about God's people as an unfaithful bride. But it talks about God as a faithful bridegroom. Faithful despite all of our unfaithfulness. Not because God is desperate or in some way needs us to be in relationship with him, but because we desperately need to be in relationship with him. You see, Micah's reminder of God's mercy is great news for the people of Israel. And it's great news by extension for us. Because while the people of Israel have sinned and rightly earned God's judgment— God is going to continue to show them mercy, and he's not going to abandon them. But you see, there's still one problem, and maybe you've picked up on it already. Although God continues to be merciful to the people, the people keep rebelling. God spares his people, and they go right back to their sinful ways. It is the story of... Of the bible human history is really one long miserable cycle of sin leading to judgment of god's mercy leading to restoration and that restoration leading right back to sin you see the unfortunate reality is that left to our own devices we can't not sin In our fallen human nature, rebellion is our default and only state. And no matter how hard we try, we fail and we bring judgment upon ourselves. And so while God's mercy is wonderful and shocking news, if we were going to get out of this cycle, something had to change. And that is why Christmas is such good news. That is why it is the ultimate catastrophe. And that brings me to my third and final point, hope incarnate. You see, in Micah 5, we find this seemingly obscure passage. It says, But you, O Bethlehem of who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, From you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. You see, although Israel did not know it at the time, this short verse is prophesying the moment when everything was going to change, when God was going to solve the problem of sin in a way that no one expected. You may have noticed that this verse sounds familiar to you, even if you're not all that familiar with the book of Micah. And that's because it's, it's quoted in another place in the Bible. In Matthew 2, around the time of the birth of Jesus, the wise men come to Herod. And they tell him they're searching for the king of the Jews. And Herod, like any secure king, freaks out. And he asks the chief priests and the scribes, where the Christ, the Messiah, was going to be born. And citing Micah 5, they tell him that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. You see, Israel knew enough to know that this verse was promising a Messiah. But what they didn't realize is that Messiah was going to be God himself. You see, what we know on this side of Christmas is that God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, was going to step in to save his people. You see, we had no hope of fulfilling God's law in our own power. And so Jesus came to fulfill God's law on our behalf. And we deserved nothing but God's judgment for our sin. But Jesus came To take our judgment upon himself. He came so that we might be set free from sin and so that we might be made right with God. And this should be more than enough. But the story doesn't stop there because of what Jesus did. Not only does faith in him free us from sin and spare us from judgment. But we are brought into relationship with the one who loves us so deeply. And we get to share in all the riches of heaven. And so I hope now we can see a little clearer, or maybe even for the first time, why Christmas really is the ultimate catastrophe, why it is the true fairy tale. Because it is a story of sinful rebels who deserved nothing but judgment, who had no hope, and yet were saved, restored, and showered with blessing. All because Jesus took on human flesh and stepped into our broken world. I want to close by quoting Pastor John Piper again, and this is a, a more complete quote of what I read earlier but I think it summarizes this really well. He says this, "What does Christmas feel like for me? It feels like I'm in a courtroom where my life hangs in the balance. The prosecuting attorney is the unassailable law of God, and the defense attorney does not exist. There is no defense. It is manifest to everyone in the courtroom that all evidence is against me. And the judge, the son of the king of the realm" brings down the gavel, guilty. I'm sentenced to execution and everlasting ruin. And as they leave the courtroom with me in bonds, the son judge follows me out, pulls me aside, and says, I'm going to take your condemnation. I love you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is indeed good news, that you have not abandoned your people, that you have not left us to the judgment we so rightly deserve, and instead you have taken it upon yourself, in the person of your Son, that we might be set free. Father, this is news that should change everything for us, and yet we're so often, we so often miss it, we're so often distracted. Would you use, especially this Advent season, to remind us of the good news of Christmas, of why we celebrate, of why there's even any reason to celebrate. And would you cause that to change our hearts in a way that we can love you and love one another. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.